Good evening. Welcome to church. My name is Lachlan. I get the joy of opening up this part of God's Word for us this evening and trying to help us feel the weight of what God has just said to us in this final chapter of Corinthians. So let me pray that God would achieve that tonight, that we'd come away understanding and feeling what God has to say to us here. Let's pray. Lord God, your Word is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. And so as we open this word tonight, we recognize that this is dangerous. You're going to do some work in us and it might be painful. But Father, we invite you to do that because we know your love. We know that any work you do in us, as painful as it might be, is for our good. So please come tonight by your spirit through your word, cut away the parts of our lives in which we're not loving you, reveal to us the sin that we have to put to death and encourage us in the things that we are doing that honour and please you. So may we all leave tonight eager and equipped to serve you in the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been great to reflect together on these last couple of months and what we've been learning from this letter to 1 Corinthians. It's been a great time. We've, we've learnt lots about the Corinthian church. We've seen the divisions that were happening amongst them as the church sought to recognize and honor different kinds of spiritual gifts, and they had to learn what it meant to love one another. We saw their desire to be the spiritual church, a good desire, even though it had gone wrong. And we saw their need to be reminded of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 has been so wonderful. It's one of my favorite chapters in the scripture, and wonderful to hear some people's reflections on being encouraged by that as well. As we come to the final chapter, it's a bit of an odd chapter. Perhaps you felt that as we read it through. It seems like there's lots of different scattered small bits put together. It can be hard to find a unifying thread. As we finish off the letter, though, often it's helpful to look back at the start of Paul's letters because he's always tying together the threads that have carried the whole thing through. And there's something that we need to remember as we come to this final chapter that Paul brought up in chapter 1, verse 2. It should be up on the screen for you to read. Paul reminded the church from the very outset that this church in Corinth was God's church. So hear the way he addresses them there. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. The church in Corinth was not Paul's church. They weren't their own church. They weren't the Corinthian church, as if somehow the community and society around them could tell them what to believe and how to live. They were God's church. They didn't get to decide for themselves why they got together. They couldn't just make up for themselves what to do when they gathered. God is the one who declares the truth for them to believe. God is the one who declares for them the behavior in which they should live. So the church in Corinth was something, part of something bigger than just themselves, a part of a bigger movement of God that included, notice in verse 2, all people everywhere who call on the name of Jesus. That's pretty big. This is a global thing that God is doing. All people everywhere who call on the name of Jesus, who say that Jesus is God and recognize that they need to be rescued by him. And so they call out to him that he might save them. That's what defines God's church in Corinth. God's church in Rome, God's church in Beijing, God's church in Cape Town. That's what defines God's church in Auckland, wherever there are people calling on Jesus as God. Now, the Corinthian church had forgotten this. They needed to be reminded that they were not the only church. They weren't the best church. 
And so throughout this letter, Paul's pointed them back again and again to the fact that they need to get in line with what God's doing everywhere. And it's helpful for us as we start out tonight. Uni Church is not Rowan's church. It's not my church. It's not our church. Uni Church is God's church. We don't get to decide what God's church looks like. We sit under God's word. That's our final authority. God declares for us the truth to believe. God dictates the behavior for us to live. Now, as we come to the final chapter, chapter 16, we'll see all these threads of how Paul's trying to show the Corinthians they're part of something bigger. And in this slightly scattered chapter, we're going to see a particular characteristic of God's church on display. All the smaller points of this chapter together show us that God's church acts with love. God's church acts with love. So get your Bibles open. The verses from chapter 16 aren't going to be up on the screen. You've got to read them along in your own Bible. You can check that what I'm saying is coming from God's Word. Uh, if you're following along with the outline in the handout that you got on the way in, good place to take some notes there. But do notice that the headings aren't in proportion to the amount of time we'll spend on them. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, just write around them. We'll spend a long time on the first point, uh, a bit of time on the second point. The third and fourth will be much quicker. But have a look with me at verse 14. Paul commands this church in Corinth, your every action must be done with love. That's a straightforward enough command. It's all-encompassing, isn't it? It's for all the church members who are hearing this, and they have to act with love in every action. This is not an optional thing. It's a command. It must be done. Your every action must be done with love. Now, we're going to see throughout chapter 16 some examples of that love. But we need to recognize at the very outset that the love which characterizes God's church, it's not, it's not the sentimental, so-called tolerant love that our society around us likes. Have you noticed that amongst our community, to love someone includes the idea that I can't correct them? I can't tell them that they're wrong. If they think that something's the case, and particularly if they feel that something is true, well, perhaps I'm allowed to disagree with them on the inside, but I certainly can't tell them that I think they're wrong. I'm not allowed to try to change their mind. Our community would say that to love them means letting them be. And a lot of people in Auckland want the church, expect Christians to love others in this kind of way. But I hope you can recognize that that's not love. True love is truthful love. The love that characterizes God's church, it's like the love that we've seen from Paul towards this Corinthian church as he writes this very letter. Cast your eyes down to the final verse in chapter 16. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul loves this church. It was a church he evangelized into existence. He went there, no Christians, he spoke the gospel, people became Christians, started gathering. He spent 18 months with them, the first 18 months of their church life, strengthening them, teaching them, equipping them. He loves them. And because he loves them, he writes them this long letter to rebuke them, to correct them, to bring them back on track. So here's some of the loving words that Paul has written to them throughout this letter. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, he writes, Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. 
I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? Those are words of love. A few chapters later, in chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. Loving words right there. Or in chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Hear the way Paul loves this church? He doesn't leave them in their falsehood. He corrects them, rebukes them, brings them back to what is good for them. Now, this isn't all that Paul's done throughout this letter. It's not that he's only picked up on bad things that are happening in the church. He has positive things to say as well. He offers some genuine praise for them. But his love for them means that he goes after their good. And that means correcting them where they're wrong. It means pointing them back to God, for God is their ultimate good. So when we end up in chapter 16 and we find this command in verse 14, your every action must be done with love. It's not a wishy-washy sentimental love. It's this kind of truthful love that needs to come with all of our actions. That kind of love can be hard. It requires us to obey the other four commands Paul gives in verse 13. Have a look at verse 13 there. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Four short, sharp commands that go hand in hand with true and truthful love. The first one, be alert, Paul says. As you look through the New Testament, this command is most commonly linked with the state of watchfulness for Jesus' return. See, Jesus has promised to come back. We've heard over the past few weeks that he rose to new life again after death. He's still alive today and he is coming back. But we don't know when. So in the meantime, God's church is to be ever watchful, always expecting day by day that today could be the return of the Lord. Now, Paul, again, has introduced this idea back at the start of the letter. He's tying up a thread here in chapter 16. In 1 verse 7, he described the Corinthians as eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, at the very end, in 16 verse 22, cast your eyes down there, that the second half of that verse, he models for the Corinthians this eager waiting. He prays a short prayer, Maranatha, which is Aramaic for Lord, come. Be alert. Be ready for the return of the Lord. Be watching that that might happen. A helpful question might be to ask, when was the last time that you prayed this prayer that Paul prays? When was the last time that you prayed, Lord, come? Often we pray that when life's not going too well. When exams are around the corner and we haven't studied well enough, come on Jesus, come now. Uh, Or when we're going through hard times and we're sick and we want Jesus to return then. It's good to pray this prayer in those times. But it's also good to pray this prayer in the good times. Because it helps us recognize that even as good as this life might be, there's something far better to come. To be with the Lord is better by far. So you might like to take up this prayer daily. I mean, it doesn't take long to pray. 
Lord, come. And it gives you a good perspective as you pray this each and every day. Be alert. Now, this kind of alertness for Jesus' return shapes the way that God's church loves people. I had a great example of this back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which we haven't looked at in this series, but if you were with us two years ago, then you'll remember. Uh, In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul told the church they needed to kick someone out. There was someone amongst the Corinthians who was claiming to be a Christian, but they were living in blatant sexual sin. And Paul says to the Corinthians, kick such a person out of your gatherings. Now that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It doesn't at the outset sound loving to exclude someone, to cut them out. But in light of the return of Jesus, that is an act of love from the church towards that person. When Jesus returns, he's returning as judge. And the person living in blatant and boastful sexual sin while claiming to be a Christian, they're actually not going to be okay on that day when Jesus returns. They're thinking that they will be okay. They're coming along to church, they're saying that they're okay with God, but their life is showing otherwise. So they need to learn that they're not okay with God. They need to learn that if they keep living the way they are living... When Jesus returns, they'll be cut out. They'll end up in hell. And so to correct this person and tell them that they're not actually a Christian, in the hope that that might lead them to confess their sin and call on the name of Jesus as Lord, that is by far the most loving thing to do. Be alert. Are we, as God's church in Auckland, alert for Jesus' return? Are we watching and waiting for him to come and letting that shape the way we encourage and correct one another? Be alert. Your every action must be done with love. Also in verse 13, there's a second command there. Stand firm in the faith. Uh, I was getting into the Christmas spirit this week. We got our Christmas tree up in the house and some lovely decorations on there. We were decorating it while watching the movie Miracle on 34th Street. Now, show of hands, who's seen Miracle on 34th Street? I don't understand this. I really, like, what is going wrong with... Oh, anyway, anyway. It is a wonderful movie. Yes, it came out in 1994, but I was pleasantly surprised at how modern it still looked. Uh, I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler, but it's not too much of a spoiler because the goodness of the movie is just the cuteness of the, like, six-year-old girl actress that plays the main part. She's absolutely adorable so watch it for her Uh, but towards the end of the movie it's all about a guy who thinks he's Santa Claus and he has to go to court to prove that he's Santa Claus Uh, great premise for a movie anyway in the end the judge uh, gets given a one dollar American bill and on the one dollar American bill it says in God we trust and by looking at that bill he ends up making a judgment that this man could be Santa Claus because although there's no evidence for Santa Claus to exist We can believe in things that don't necessarily have evidence, just like we believe in God. We trust in God, even though there might not be any evidence. Now, that is a terrible picture of what trust and faith is. But lots of people think that that's what it means to stand firm in your faith as a Christian. There might not be any evidence out there, but just stand firm. There might actually be contrary evidence against your belief in God, but just stand firm. Friends, that's not biblical faith. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is trust in the promises of a person. The historical basis and evidence is there. We've seen that over the past few weeks in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. 
And we've got ample evidence that we can trust God. Our faith is our trust in the person, our trust in God. And throughout all of history, God has shown himself to be trustworthy. Stand firm in that faith. When pressures come, when people try to shift you away from your faith, when trials come along and they raise doubts and questions, when people try to pressure you to conform to their way of life, stand firm. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting that Jesus is returning. And so keep living in obedience to God's commands while you wait. Compromising your relationship with God is never going to be an act of love towards another person. Stand firm. Your every action must be done with love. Now, as verse 13 goes on, these next ones might concern some of you. Paul goes on and says, Act like a man, be strong. Some English translations, you might have something different in front of you. They gloss over the potential offense of this by putting be courageous in place of act like a man. Now, that's getting to the right notion of this command. It is about courage and being courageous. But the Greek text behind this says what the Holman translation says that we use within church, act like a man. And I think it's a sad day if we've lost any sense of being able to talk about manliness and womanliness. That is kind of where our society is trying to lead us, to saying there's no distinction between the genders, even questioning whether there are just two genders or whether there's a continuum and whether we can be fluid between the gender that we are. Uh, I think that's a sad day if we've ended up there. And so I wonder for you, just as a bit of a check on where you're up and you're thinking about this, uh, would you ever tell someone to act like a man? Would you ever tell someone to act like a woman? And what would you mean by that? Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that you should be saying that to people. Just for you to get into your mind, what, what do those things mean for you? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Because as we come to this command, act like a man, what, what is Paul saying? As you look through the Bible, masculinity in God's design has to do with responsibility and courage. To act like a man is to courageously step up to the plate and lead from the front foot, no matter what opposition is coming against you. So men, take note of this. Don't shirk responsibility and hide out in your man cave playing video games and drinking V or Mother or whatever it is that you drink and watching sport all day. Or I don't know what your particular thing is that you do instead of taking responsibility, but act like a man. Don't abuse and hurt any people that you're responsible for. Don't lord it over people because you've got this position of responsibility. Instead, when danger comes, put your life on the line. Step forward. That's kind of generally what it means to act like a man in biblical terms. But here in the letter to the Corinthians, he's not just talking to the men about those kinds of things. He's talking to the whole church, men and women, and encouraging the whole church to act like men and to be strong. Why does he do that? Because the Christian life is not for cowards. There's responsibility to be taken. You can't cruise through life as a Christian. Opposition will come and it has to be confronted. Now, I've already seen that throughout this letter, Paul's dealt some heavy blows to this church. He's pointed out things that they need to work on and correct. That's going to take leadership. That's going to take strength to deal with all the things that Paul's laid bare for this church. So he calls all the Corinthians, not just the men, but the women as well, to be manly and strong. 
deal with the divisions that are among you. Don't just let them slide by and leave it to someone else to deal with that. Kick the person out of church and any who are like them. Love your spouses, love your singles, lay down your rights for others. These are all things that Paul has instructed the church in throughout the letter. They take courage, they take strength and leadership. So act like a man, be strong. Your every action must be done with love. Friends, God's church acts with love. And the rest of chapter 16 that we turn to now uh, illustrates that love. So the first thing we see is that as part of this bigger movement, the Corinthian church, as God's church in Corinth, part of something bigger, God's church needs to love outwardly. God's church loves those outside of their own community. So come to chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I'll send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. A bit of context to help us understand what's happening here. Uh, Paul, alongside his preaching ministry, Most of what Paul did as the apostle to the Gentiles was going into new regions to let people know about Jesus, that he died for them, that he was risen for them, as we saw back at the start of chapter 15. But alongside that, uh, he spent a good deal of time collecting money to send back to the church in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem were having a particularly hard time. At one point, they were under a severe famine, and Paul collected funds for that. Uh, At other times, he was collecting funds to send back to them to try to help teach the Gentile Christians that they were one family and one church with these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. I don't know if you're familiar much with the opposition that was going on between the Jews and Gentiles. There's a big teaching point for the early church to learn that Jewish and Gentile Christians both had access to God in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. That both Jewish and Gentile Christians were part of God's family in the same way. And so Paul was collecting money, you can read about it in Romans, in Galatians, in 2 Corinthians as well as here in 1 Corinthians. Many times Paul speaks of this kind of collection. And here the Corinthians are to financially give to these members of God's church in Jerusalem to give outside of themselves. As Paul fills that out, he gives some helpful principles for our giving. The world and far too many Christians, we give on impulse and when we're under pressure, That person bowls up to you while you're walking down Queen Street and tries to talk to you about the particular charity that they want you to support and we feel like we're under pressure and on impulse we might choose to give something. But when we give in that kind of way, when we give on impulse under pressure, we don't give thoughtfully and we don't give generously. You just kind of scrounge around in your pocket and go, oh, what's left? What's left after what I've spent this week? The 50 cents that I've got there, I'll, I'll give that one away. And so instead of that, Paul gives us some wisdom. He instructs the Corinthian Christians to set something aside each week. That planned regularity, it means you'll be more generous. You get used to living without the money over time. You're setting aside each and every week, you're in routine, giving that away. It helps you to be more generous. Alongside that regularity, Paul instructs them to give each week in keeping with how they've prospered. It's not that there's some standard donation amount, like he's saying to everyone, all right, you've all got to give $100, no matter how much income you've got. No, Christian giving is about recognizing that everything you have has come to you from God as he has prospered you. 
There'll be times when you've got lots. There'll be times when you've got little. But as a steward of God's money, it's about taking whatever God has prospered to you and returning that to Him, directing it back to His purposes. We give in proportion to our income. For many of us today, our weekly income is fixed. We might have a stable job and we have a salary that spans across a year. And so week by week, it's going to be the same amount of income. That's helpful for us in our regularity of giving. Uh, For others, it's more like it was in Paul's day. For most people in Paul's day, their weekly income rose and fell. Uh, Many of them were agricultural workers and depending on what they brought in that week, they might have a great week, they might have a poor week. And Paul's saying, that's okay. Each week, set aside what you can. Where setting a percentage for our giving can be helpful. No matter what happens to your income then, you just know, well, this proportion of whatever's come in, that's what I'm going to give away. There will be times, though, where that percentage that you've set is too little and you can actually give much more. So your living costs won't always increase at the same rate as your income does. Give generously in proportion to your income and give generously to the things that will last beyond resurrection. This time of year is a helpful time to be hearing this from God, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps you're in a regular job that gives you a yearly bonus. You've got that extra check or that extra deposit into your bank account. You've prospered this week with that bonus. What will you do with that? Or perhaps you're looking ahead next year at your first ever job. You've graduated uni. You're like, all right, game on. Let's earn some money. Here's some principles for what to do with that income. Perhaps you've got the summer job. It's helpful for us to hear these principles tonight. Give in a planned, weekly, proportionate manner. Now, these principles, they will help you in your regular giving to the running costs of church, as Rowan's already pointed us to tonight. Great to see many of us contributing in a regular way to what God's doing amongst us as a church. But recognize in 1 Corinthians, that's not the kind of giving that Paul's talking about here. This is something beyond that regular giving to the local church. We're talking about God's church loving outwardly, loving other churches and other ministries. Here, they're giving to the church in Jerusalem. So I'm not asking you tonight to give to me. I'm not asking you to give just to the local church here. I'm asking you to give. To give generally, to give to the Lord's work globally, nationally, locally. As we do that, there's another principle about money that we see in verse 3. That the money given by the church should be administered by trusted representatives that the church selects. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthians, here's the people that you're giving your money to. I'm going to send them to you like repo men and they're going to collect it no matter what. No, it's not like that. Uh, The church is setting aside their money and they get to set aside the people that they trust to gather that money. Now, that's our practice as a church as well. not sure if you know that. We do everything we can to stay transparent and above board in our management of money. Uh, As congregations, each year at our AGM, the annual great meeting, hope you were there for its greatness earlier this year. Uh, At those meetings, we elect our executive committee. They're the people who are responsible for administering the donations that we receive, elected by our congregations for our congregations. So if you're a member here, take charge of electing the people that you trust. Come along to that meeting. Think well and seriously, who do you trust to manage the money that you're giving? Take seriously that money. And something to note as we talk through this is that our exec, in keeping with the outward-looking love of God's church, uh, they've said that 10% of all the donations that we receive as a church will go beyond the ministry of Auckland EV. 
So 10% of everything that's given into church here is directed towards other ministries outside of ourselves, national and global projects. So we're, as a church, seeking to follow the model laid out by Paul here. Be encouraged as we get these principles for giving. So that's one way that God's church loves outwardly. There's a second way that comes up for us in verse 5 to 11. Have a look at this second illustration of God's church loving outwardly. Uh, This is a bit of a funny section. Paul's just talking through his travel plans. But there are principles that we can draw from this. He says in verse 5, I'll come to you after I pass through Macedonia. For I'll be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll remain with you or even spend the winter. Uh, Note that winter wasn't a good time to be in a boat on the Mediterranean Sea. You just found somewhere to spend the winter. So he's looking to spend some time with them. And he goes on, I'll spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. He's got that language there of the Corinthians sending him on his way. Uh, That language is about them providing for Paul in his missionary journey. He's going to spend some time with them, and then he hopes that they'll actually give him provisions, financial support for his next leg of his journey, wherever he goes next to proclaim Jesus. Proclaiming Jesus was how Paul decided where to travel. See how he continues in verse 8? He says, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. So Paul would have loved to visit Corinth now, to see these old friends that he loves so dearly, but at the moment there's a great opportunity for ministry. He's in Ephesus, he's proclaiming the gospel, people are becoming Christian. If you want to read more about that, look at Acts 19. We actually hear the story of Paul in Ephesus. And while he's preaching the gospel, there's opposition there. So he's keen to stick around and to lead that church. Uh, as, as Paul fills out these travel plans, he's showing them this opportunity to give outside of themselves. First of all, they can love the Ephesian church. We read back in chapter 4 of Corinthians that some of the church were getting a bit angry, a bit antsy that Paul wasn't there yet. They're like, is he even coming to visit us? Does this guy love us? Paul's saying, I do love you. I want to visit you but you can love the Ephesian Christians now by letting me stay here. Don't get angry. There's good opportunity for ministry here in Ephesus. Let me be. And then beyond that, when he does arrive in Corinth, they can support him onto his next town, where he'll again be preaching the gospel, starting churches, strengthening existing churches. God's church loves outwardly. They won't just do it for Paul. He encourages them to do the same for Timothy. In verse 11, Timothy's already on his way to Corinth. Now, I don't know exactly what this one's going to look like for us as a church. We don't have too many visiting missionaries amongst us. But I was really encouraged earlier in the year, back in March, we had a team come from Sydney to join with us and partner with us in proclaiming the gospel to Auckland. I was really encouraged by the hospitality that we extended as a church. It was fantastic. I think we sent them back to Sydney onto the next leg of their journey. Well, I'm sure we will have others visit us over the years. Uh, Keep your eyes open for these opportunities to love others, love others and support others who are doing the work of God beyond Auckland EV. Uh, Another thing that this will mean for us as a church, we are very keen and very committed to be a church planting church. In the not too distant future, we'll send some out from amongst us to plant a new church, perhaps in Hamilton, perhaps somewhere else. That's going to be an opportunity for us as God's church to love outwardly. There'll be people amongst us that we have to farewell. And that's going to be hard because we, we love them. We love spending time with them. But to send them off to do new ministry will be fantastic. 
and we'll have an opportunity to contribute financially to the start of this new work. So keep your eye open for that opportunity whenever that comes about. We are also looking for a long-term global gospel preaching missionary to support when we find one. That'll be an opportunity for us as God's church to love outwardly. That's the nature of God's church. God's church loves outwardly. Now, like I said, these last two will be a bit quicker. God's church, as well as loving outwardly, loves inwardly. God's church is characterized by love for one another within the local church. Come down to verse 20. Verse 20. Particularly the second half, as Paul commands them, greet one another with a holy kiss. Another straightforward command from Paul, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't know why we've been disobeying this for so long. Uh, I look forward to seeing lots of kissing after church. No, I don't look forward to that. Um, What's going on here? What's this about? Uh, Keep in mind, we're talking about Corinth on a map. We're in Greece. If any of you are Mediterranean or know any Mediterranean people, uh, they love to kiss. It's just part of greeting for them. Uh, It's nothing that's raunchy. It's nothing that's strange. It's just their equivalent of a handshake. In Kiwi culture, we don't love to kiss so much. Uh, we don't even necessarily love to hug. We're much more happy with just the gentle handshake. Uh, the point here is not about making us do something that's culturally odd for us. The key is that when we come to church, we greet one another in a way that shows love and warmth and welcome because we're actually glad to see each other. So I think the focus in this verse is not on the kissing side, but on the holiness side. It's a holy kiss. It's not a hypocritical kiss, like the Hollywood stars who hate each other, but for the sake of the cameras, give a peck on the cheek to pretend everything's okay. It's not a lustful kiss, just chasing after the handsome men and the pretty women wanting to kiss them. It's a holy kiss recognizing the church as the people that God has brought together in all our diversity. So it's not an excuse after church to go and use a hug for greeting just so that you can creepily hug the guy or the girl that you've got a secret crush on. It's not an excuse for that. We're not to show any favoritism in this greeting. We're to greet each other, one another. There's no favoritism to be shown. This is Paul's helpful, concrete response to division within the church. There's to be no division present. We'd greet all. If we're not glad to see one another, then we need to actually start confessing our sins to each other and being reconciled to each other so that we will be glad to see each other. There are four places in Paul's letters where he instructs this holy kiss. And in each of them, there has been some conflict present within the church. So the kiss that he commands, the holy kiss, is a regular, concrete expression of the unity that is ours in Christ. How do you greet others when you come to church? How did you greet others tonight when you turned up? Was there a warmth and excitement to see one another? Or was there a reservedness, just a holding back? As you look around and think through who's at church tonight, is there someone that you refuse to greet? You need to sort that out. We should be able to come together and greet everyone with a holy kiss or a holy handshake, whatever it might be. (laughs) I think this can extend beyond when we gather on a Sunday. I mean, the way we live in a city now means we don't necessarily bump into one another much through the week. 
But when you do see someone from church on the street, do you do the whole, I'm going to turn my eyes away and hope they don't see me because I don't really want to talk to them thing? Uh, If you do that, then there's probably a problem there as well. This warmth should extend beyond our Sunday gatherings as we look for each and every opportunity to encourage one another. So the church of God loves outwardly and God's church loves inwardly. And finally, and most importantly, even though this only takes up half of a verse, God's church loves upwardly. That is, God's church loves God. So have a look at verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Just repeat that again so it sinks in the weight of that. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. The love that we offer outwardly from church, the love that we offer inwardly in church, draws its strength from the love that we have for the Lord. Loving the Lord means admiring him, enjoying him. And that overflows into trust and thankfulness and obedience. We seek to honour the Lord and make him famous. That is our love for the Lord. I wonder for you tonight, do you love Jesus? If you're here tonight and you do not love Jesus, then you do not love God. And if you do not love God, then you are under a curse, excluded from all that is good for all eternity. I don't say that with joy. I don't want to smile on my face as I say that about you. I'm not happy that you're under judgment. But I want to love you with the truth. Jesus is coming. We saw that earlier tonight. And he's coming as the judge. I want you to be ready for that. So admit that you've mistreated Jesus. Own it. Confess it. Ask for his forgiveness today. Then you'll no longer be under God's curse, but you'll be under all of God's blessing. For he is gracious. He is willing to forgive if you just ask. Now this word might be for you because you've come to church tonight. You've never thought you're a Christian. You're just here checking things out. If that's you, today is a good day to become a Christian. Repent. Admit that you've done wrong. Admit that you've treated Jesus wrongly. And love him. Admire him. Respond with obedience and thankfulness. But it might also be for you, because you've been calling yourself a Christian, you've been coming along to church, but you haven't actually been loving Jesus. You've been living in blatant sin, like the person back in 1 Corinthians 5, and you've not been willing to turn away from that. Well, today's a good day to confess. See, Paul's writing this last bit to the church in Corinth. He's got that particular person in mind in chapter 5 and others like them who might be within the gathering, but not loving Jesus. If that's you, today's a good day to confess your sin. Paul, apart from his final ending about his own love, In verse 23, his second last word is, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. We love a God who loves us, who has been gracious towards us, who has washed us clean of our sin. If we turn back to him, he will forgive.
God's church acts with love, outwardly, inwardly, and upwardly. So Uni Church, we are God's church. With firm faith, strength, and courage, let all of your actions today, tomorrow, throughout as many days as God gives you, let all of your actions be done with truthful love as we eagerly wait for Jesus to return. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, please come soon. While we wait, give us strength, give us courage to love one another. Help us to reconcile any differences that are keeping us from greeting one another with a holy kiss. Help us to keep looking outward, beyond just what's happening amongst us as Auckland EV and as Uni Church, to the wider work that you're doing in Auckland, in the North Island, in New Zealand, across the globe. Help us to be a church that loves outwardly. And please, by your Spirit, keep our love for you strong. Help us to keep seeing Jesus each and every day, to see new aspects of his greatness and majesty, his kindness, his compassion. So help us to admire and adore him. And particularly as we come to this Christmas time and think through the narrative where you took on flesh and dwelt amongst us, help us to be once more amazed at that Christmas story, to be amazed by you as you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We long for your return, Lord Jesus. Please come soon. Amen.